From KIOS in Omaha and Exorbin Creative, you're listening to Riverside Chats. I'm Tom Noblock, and on today's show, I have a conversation with Omaha screenwriter Patrick Stibbs, whose new film, his first screenplay, The Call, is now in theaters. It would have been really easy to give up after like the 100th rejection, <laughs> but I just kept thinking of that quote that Walt Disney said, you know, and it's like, if you don't pursue it, you ain't, ain't going to get it. You know, and, it, and nobody ever said it was going to be handed to you. 20 years after he started working on The Call, it finally exists. It's finally a movie that you can see in a theater and very soon on demand. The Call was directed by Timothy Woodward Jr. and stars horror legends Lynn Shay and Tobin Bell. Stay tuned for the conversation right here on Riverside Chats. And welcome to Riverside Chats. I'm Tom Noblock. On today's show, I'm talking with Patrick Stibbs, who started working on his first screenplay, The Call, in the late 1990s. He finished the screenplay, had people like Alexander Payne look at it, and it languished in development hell for nearly 20 years before now it finally is out. It's available. It happened. It is a Hollywood movie. It was directed by Timothy Woodward Jr. and stars horror legends Tobin Bell and Lynn Shay. So I get the story from the man himself. And this is going to be our first episode that's playing after the election. So let me just say, let me breathe a sigh of relief that I get to talk about this horror movie of horrific violence and psychological terror as this great, great relief from talking about politics for a little bit here. So uh, as I record this, uh, it is a few days before Election Day. So I don't know. Uh, I don't know the state of things, but uh, I hope it's good. Hope we're in a good spot. Uh, I hope we can hope we can let ourselves uh, think about other things for a while. Can we do that? I don't know. How you how you how are you doing with it? You doing well? Okay. How, you want you want to talk about a horror movie? You want to want to get scared about fake things instead of real things? Well, all right, I got a show for you. So The Call is one of the few movies that's playing in local theaters. It's currently playing at Westwood Cinema, and it will have a video on-demand release very soon. So without further ado, here is my conversation with the writer, Patrick Stibbs. First of all, congratulations on the movie happening, uh, The Call. That's Thank very you. exciting. Uh, now, Thank you. are you somebody who, since you were a kid, were you always obsessed with horror movies? I was. Uh, as a matter of fact, when I was about 11 or 12 years old, I don't, um, we had a show here in Omaha called Creature Feature, which was uh, the weekly uh, Saturday night monster movie show hosted by a local uh, uh, a host named Dr. Stan Guaneri. And so yeah, I, I remember distinctly the very first episode. Um, I remember where I was. Uh, uh, you know, the, the movie was King Kong. I remember they showed it. It was like it debuted and it was like, I never looked back after that. It was like every week, a different monster movie. Um, so I was definitely hooked on horror uh, at, at a very young age. And then, of course, as I got older, uh, you know, I was a teenager when all the original, you know, Friday the 13th movies came out and Nightmare on Elm Street movies and and all of those. So, you know, very much a fan of those films. And um and then the older I got, I kind of got away from more of the slasher stuff, and I was really more uh, intrigued by the psychological type of horror films. Um, so yeah, always have been a fan. So why horror specifically, as opposed to like musicals or any other genre? 
Well, I mean, I, I'm, I am a fan of all types of genres, but I guess with horror movies, it's it's the total escapism. It's it's literally getting the crap scared out of you. And then, you know, two hours later, the lights come up and everything's fine. So, you you know, you really get to enter this dark, dangerous world, um, which everybody likes to get scared. Even Even people that say they don't like to get scared, they really do. Uh, everybody loves that feeling of getting scared. And then all of a sudden, Hey, everything's okay at the end of the movie, you know? So I think that's probably why just, um, and I worked at the movie theater too, for years and years, probably my favorite job of all time. And so whenever we show a horror film, I purposely go in and just watch people, you know, and see the expression on their faces and, you know, girls clinging to their boyfriends or whatever. And, and, uh, you know, again, um, Everybody loves to be scared and uh, not that there's anything wrong with musicals or comedies or, yeah, but I guess the horror genre has always intrigued me because of that. Well, I mean, part of it is you have to be able to tap into what scares you to some extent. So, I mean, are you somebody, are you anxious? Is that something that uh, like you're able to just channel real dread you're feeling into a project you're working on? Well, yes and no. I will say though, with the call though, I really, I didn't really channel any kind of, it wasn't really like that. Uh, the call uh, was actually based on an idea that I got reading an old Hollywood um, film magazine. Uh, back in the 90s, I used to go to the, I'd go to like thrift stores and I'd find these old, you know, Hollywood confidential magazines. They were sort of like the National Enquirer of the, of the day, you know, the 40s and 50s. And they were always about Hollywood and stars and and there was one particular issue where there was an actress who passed away, some B-movie actress whose name ironically escapes me at this time. But uh, she loved to play practical jokes on her friends. So when she died and the people came to her wake, they uh, the, her family passed out business cards. And on the card, it just said, you know, if you're bored, call me. And it had a telephone number. And everyone got one of these cards. So when they went up to the casket to pay their last respects, there was this actress, you know, lying in state with a telephone on top of her chest. And then the family informed everybody that this woman was going to be buried with a telephone in her coffin. So if anybody would like to call her, please do so. And so I just envisioned, you know, I, I know she meant it as kind of a ha-ha last, you know, practical joke kind of thing. But I sort of took it the other way. That really would creep me out. And I kept thinking, man, there's like a movie idea in there somewhere. Because I just envisioned these, you know, 200 people going home after the wake and dialing that phone number to see what was on the other end of the line. What, and How long ago did you have that idea then? That, I, that idea came to me in 1998. So you've been sitting with this for a very long time. Exactly. I wrote the first draft about a year later. Uh, a couple years later, I guess it was done by the year 2000. And that's when I started kind of sending it out to folks. And so, yeah, literally 20 years. So was that the first script that you'd written? Yes, it was the first script I'd written. Since then, I've written a few more. But this was the very first uh, full length script that I'd written. I'd written some shorts, uh, short film scripts, um, a couple that got made just locally. Hmm. And um, but this was the first full length feature script yes so when you were growing up and you were you know interested in horror movies you worked at a movie theater you were you know, sort of absorbing all of that did you have aspirations that whole time that you wanted to get into the film industry and get some movies made 
Well, ironically enough, when I was in college or high school and college, I was in theater. So my first thought was, hey, I think it'd be really cool to be an actor. And then what happened was, is I got kind of sidetracked and got into radio, which in a sense is still acting. And um, but I, the what really intrigued me, though, was the writing. I was always a writer. Even as a little kid, I would write stories when I got into high school and college. Uh, you know, my writing classes, I, always, I took every writing class I could. So I, I was really obsessed with writing. And then even when I got into my radio career and started writing and producing commercials, you know, I always looked at a 60 second radio commercial as sort of a 60 second movie. You know, it's got a beginning, a middle and an end, just like a movie. So I, I sort of would hone my craft on, on 60 second radio spots or TV spots. And then, um, and then, uh, so, so really my, once I got into college and, uh, and graduated from college, then really the writing aspect of it really took over. And then I knew I someday wanted to be a writer. Well, it's weird as far as horror stories go, because it seems like for film, for the most part, it's sort of a low budget affair. Whereas in the literary world, you've got, you know, like your Stephen King's, your Dean Koontz, the, the, the horror, the thriller can be this huge blockbuster in books where it's actually kind of rare in movies. So, I mean, how, how did you sort of figure out which medium you wanted to work in? Uh, as far as genre, you mean? Uh, well, no, just like, you know, why make a movie? Why not write books and, you know, follow oh, in the Stephen King tradition? Well, you know what? I, I never thought, first of all, I was always amazed when I would see, for instance, you know, Stephen King would release a book that's 800 pages long. And I swear to God, the guy writes one like one a week. And I would think, I didn't know if I ever had the patience to write something of that nature. You know, a, a movie script is about a hundred pages long average, you know, you figure about a page a minute. So I just thought it would be easier and, and, and less time consuming to, to, um, to write a movie script as opposed to a novel. And plus when you're writing a novel, I mean, you real you know how descriptive things have to be and all of that. And, you know, in a movie script, your scenes don't have to be as descriptive because the director will fill in a lot of that. You know, so I could write a, you know, I could write a scene where it says, you know, interior, you know, um, dark house, you know, man walks down creaky hallway. So it, it may be three or four sentences where in a novel, you know, you've got to really elaborate that scene. And, and uh, so I didn't know if I really had the patience to do that. Who knows? Maybe someday I'll give it a shot. I mean, I really never thought I'd ever get a chance to write a movie script either uh, until I finally just decided to do it. Because I, I, you know, and I kept seeing so many bad horror films, and I would say to myself, "God, I know I could write one better than that." And then finally, I'm just—it's kind of like I said to myself, "Well, why don't you just stop about it and do it?" And that's kind of why I did it. Well, that, that's actually kind of interesting because I, I feel sort of the same way, which is I have this allure to the horror genre. But I can't name that many horror movies that I think are like amazing. I can name, you know, maybe yeah. maybe ten that I really really like. So I mean, why is it that it's so hard? What what are people missing when they make so many of these horror movies that maybe have an okay concept but just can't stick the landing? Well, I think a lot of them they're just they just repeat themselves. So there are there are the plots just repeat themselves. I mean, uh, you know, for instance, when you look at all the slasher films, you know, the big era of the slasher film. You know, it was always the horny teens getting killed after they had sex. I mean, how many times did that happen? Like literally every single slasher film. And I, I think they just, they were just turning out the kind of the same old stuff. And so 
it's interesting when you talk to people's favorite horror films, for the most part, they're not like the most necessarily the most popular horror film that ever came out. I think the exception might be John Carpenter's Halloween, which is still everyone's favorite. You know, uh, he just did such a brilliant job and he, I think he shot that movie for like $150,000. I mean, it was just super cheap and, and it was just so brilliant. I and mean, you know, everything, the writing, the pacing, um, you know, it wasn't your typical slasher film. Um, I mean, some scenes might have been, but I think overall he did a fantastic job or the writers did. I'm not sure if Carpenter wrote it or who wrote it. But um, so I think the biggest problem is with horror anyway, it's just kind of the same old, same old. And that's that's another reason why I didn't want to just write a, a typical what I thought was a typical. Oh, here's a here's a killer serial killer on the loose you know, escapes the mental asylum or whatever. I just didn't want to go there. I wanted something a little bit different and uh, something that I'd want to go see. It seems like there's a balance between the truly horrific and the fun that's a really hard line to walk. Like I think when I think of a, a, an effective horror movie from contemporary times, uh, the Ari Aster movie Hereditary, mm-hmm. I, I don't know what you feel about that one. I feel like that movie, honestly... The first act of that uh, is so horrific and disturbing to me that the supernatural element almost feels like a relief to just this really raw family trauma. Um, (laughs) But then you get on the other side, you get like your Twilight Zone sort of tradition where it's all kind of fun. And there's almost this level of irony that we're all engaging with kind of from a distance as we watch, which can be thrilling in its own way. So, I mean, how how did you decide what would be the right tone for the call? Well, one of my favorite directors, I don't know if you're familiar with William Castle, but William Castle wrote a lot of films in the 50s. And actually, actually, I take it back. He didn't write them. He directed and produced uh, a lot of uh, horror films in the 50s and 60s and, and early 70s. And I guess his style was he, he, he would make these really cool little you know monster movies or horror movies but he never had much money to promote him and the studios never gave him much. So he had to come up with all kinds of crazy gimmicks for his movies to help sell them. So the first film he did in 1959 was called Macabre. And again, he knew he didn't have a lot of money to promote it. So what he did is he decided to, um, as a gimmick, uh, anyone around the world who went and saw this movie, he was going to insure them against death by fright. So that if they were watching his movie and they died of fright, uh, Castle would pay for their funeral. And he literally went to Lloyd's of London and got an insurance policy to do this, to insure the entire world against somebody dying of fright during the showing of this movie. And in his autobiography uh, that he wrote shortly before he died in 77, he talks about sitting down in front of Lloyd's of London and they were like, well, Mr. Castle, you got to let us know in order for us to write you this policy, how many people are going to die of fright? And he's like, no one, you can't die of fright. There is no such thing. You know, you can have a heart attack. You can have an aneurysm. You could, you know, a ceiling could fall down to hit you. You could kill yourself, whatever, but you can't die of fright. And they're like, well, Mr. Castle, we've got it. In order to do this, we have to have a number. We have to know. And then finally he's like, fine, three people, three people are going to die of fright. And And then they had something they could go on. And he, would say, he said in his book, he's like, you know, I found out that insurance people have no sense of humor whatsoever. So he, he, the fact that he did all these gimmicks for his films, and, and his films were scary, but they were also schlocky sometimes, but they were fun. And he made it fun 
to watch the films. And so even when I did the call, um, although we only, we, you know, it showed in, it's, it's in like, I think up to like 400 markets now around the country or 400 theaters, I should say. But in Omaha, when we did a screening here, I actually, I stole William Castle's idea and we literally insured everybody that came to the screening of Death by Fright. My insurance guy wrote up a policy, everybody had to sign. And thankfully no one died, so I didn't have to pay anything. Uh, cause my wife was freaking out going now, just watch what's just watch what happens here. Someone's going to drop dead during this thing. I'm like, well, we would get a lot of publicity, so it might be worth it. I don't know. So in answer, a long winded answer to your question, Tom, I guess I, I like that kind of horror. I like the fun horror. I want to make it fun for people to go to. I mean, the film is definitely, this film is definitely scarier. I feel than any film William Castle did. And 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 my director Timothy Woodward Jr. just did an amazing job of of putting this thing together. I mean, it really uh, he did a fantastic job. If you're just joining us, I'm talking today with Patrick Stibbs, writer of the new horror movie The Call, which is currently playing in theaters. So, what was the process then? So you write it, and then did you have any idea how to actually get the script in the hands of people who would make it? Yeah, because um, I I I I, had, I knew some people in the film industry. Um, mostly on the publicity um, exhibitor relations side. Because when I was in radio full-time, for instance, at Sweet 98, I was there and I was doing all these movie premieres. So I'd work with, you know, 20th Century Fox and Disney and, and uh, you know, Paramount, whatever. And I would do these movie shootings. So I was able to meet a lot of people on the theater exhibitor side um, who sometimes would kind of help me get a name or two to send my original draft off to. I also went to school with um, Alexander Payne, the director here from Omaha. Uh, Alex and I, he was a year behind me in high school, but so being friends with him, got the script to him early on to kind of have him give me some notes on it. Cause you know, when you write your first draft, uh, as a, as a first time writer, you, you have this mistaking belief that, wow, this is, this is perfect, man. It's, it's ready to go out and it's so far from it. And so that's why it's good to get it to as many industry people or even friends and family, even if you don't know industry people, get it to your friends and family, have them read it and have them give you an honest opinion of what they like and what they don't like about it so that you can, you know, keep making it better and better and better. Cause that's what it's all about as well. You know, when this script first went out in, in, in the early two thousands, we actually attracted um, an Academy award winning actress by the name of Patricia Neal. And Neil had done, I mean, she was a legend in Hollywood. She won an Academy Award in the movie HUD with Paul Newman and Day of the Earth Stood Still, classic science fiction film she was in, which is actually where I met her, was at a screening of that. And uh, I was able to get her the script and kind of give her a pitch. And uh, she called me three months later and said she wanted to do it. So we had her attached. This was back in like 2000 and, oh, wow, 2001 or 2002, I think. And... I really thought we had a chance of getting it made then, but you know, that's one of the things you learn as you get started in this business is just because you have an Academy award winning actress or actor, that doesn't necessarily mean that the, your movie is going to get made because although she was a legend, she was pretty much retired by then. And her name didn't have the same kind of clout, you know, that if, you know, if, if you wrote a script and all of a sudden, you know, Reese Witherspoon called you and said, I want to do this it's going to, it's probably going to get made. I mean, you know, not guaranteed, but you got a real good shot. 
And so, um, you know, I went through that process. Five different companies over the years would option it, and they couldn't raise the money. And um, so finally, it got to uh, an actress by the name of Lynn Shea. And Lynn is just a legend in horror. Uh, she's in all the Insidious movies and Ouija. And, and plus, not only horror films, but she's a great comedic actress. You know, she was in There's Something About Mary with Ben Stiller. She was in Dumb and Dumber, Kingpin. I mean, she's just an amazing actress. And she's got clout in Hollywood. So once once it got to her about three years ago and she agreed to play the lead, that's when things really started to click. So that's 20 years then of you just continually trying to get it into new eyes, getting new eyes on it and trying to see if you can get some traction, some momentum or how, how did, what did you do for those 20 years with it? Well, again, uh, several times uh, a company would option it. And then that company would have it for a year or two trying to get it made, you know, raise the money. So, you know, when, when you op, when you let someone option your script, then they basically own it temporarily and you're not allowed to shop it anywhere. And so I'd have to wait and see if that company would get the movie made or could get it sold. And they, you know, most, they couldn't. So that happened, like I said, I think that happened probably four or five times, five times. And then, uh, and as that, you know, as people were trying to get that made, I started writing another script um, and then and yet another. And um, so, you know, you know, it's not like you're really sitting, you're not sitting idly by waiting, but you have to kind of like, you know, give that company time to get the movie made, hopefully. And it just never materialized those first few times. So I'm curious when you say you gave it to Alexander Payne for notes, uh, what, what, what do Alexander Payne notes on a horror movie look like? Well, you know, it's interesting because he had, he's never done horror. And, uh, but he was one, I actually got some very good notes from him. We, we, um, I gave him the script and then we, uh, we had breakfast a, a couple months later and he's, you know, he, he kind of steered me in the right direction. I, I had these four kids that were terrorizing this elderly woman and all four of the kids were, were, were pretty much jerks. I mean, they were all, and they, you know, and the, cause the whole point was then Cranston will get her come up and since she'll get even and get revenge. And Alexander is really the one, his, the, the best advice he gave me is he goes, he goes, you know, your four kids here, these, these leads, none of them are very likable. And he said, you know, you can have three of them be the total biggest asses in the world and, and the audience can hate them, but they got to, they got to like one of them, you know, they got to, and I, I, and when I was writing the first draft, I thought of that, but I thought, well, I kind of want the antagonist who is, her name is Edith Cranston. I really wanted her to be sort of like both antagonist and protagonist. So I wanted the kids to be the bad guys. And in a sense, she actually turns out to be kind of the good guy. And uh, he goes, well, I see, I see where you're going with that. But he goes, I, <clears throat> you know, you've got to, the audience has got to follow somebody. So he goes, I, my best advice to you is to go back and rewrite one of these characters to be the one that people follow. And so in the second or third draft, whatever it was, I did that. I went back and changed a lot and so that people could do that. Cause it is true that, you know, when you see a movie, there usually is one lead character that you do follow and um, which I love it when directors break the rules, which I think 
one of the reasons why one of my favorite films is Alfred Hitchcock's Psycho, because, you know, Hitchcock had the balls to kill off his leading lady in the first 20 minutes of the movie. And he did that on purpose. I, I would read interviews, you know, with Hitch. And he said he purposely did that because he wanted everyone to like Marion Crane, the lead, Janet Lee's character. And then when she dies, he wanted to throw the whole audience into a tizzy. And at that point, when she dies, the audience is like, oh, my God, now what do we do? Well, now we got to follow Norman Bates. You know, so, so we're going to follow this creepy guy. He's going to be our new protagonist because we just killed off the leading. So he really that was a really gutsy thing to do because and it didn't happen in movies very often. So uh, Alexander's notes were pretty good. You know, he, he just, uh, again, he's not a horror. I wouldn't say he's an expert in horror, but he's certainly written a lot of scripts. And so his, his, his input was very valuable to me. I'm talking today with Patrick Stibbs, whose new movie, The Call, was written 20 years ago and is finally a real thing that you can see in a real movie theater. And you can see it across the country before it eventually makes its way to video on demand. I'll be back with the rest of the conversation after this break right here on Riverside Chats. If you're a fan of Riverside Chats and want to see the show not only continue but expand in new spin-off shows including a film club, a book club, and a news roundup, please consider becoming a Patreon at patreon.com slash riversidechats. For as low as just $1 a month, you get access to exclusive audio as well as our full backlog of episodes. Our most recent 50 are always free. Older than that goes behind the paywall. So you get that plus exclusive content over at patreon.com slash riversidechats. Please consider becoming a patron today. And welcome back to Riverside Chats. I'm Tom Noblock, and on today's show, I'm talking with Omaha writer Patrick Stibbs, who wrote a script called The Call 20 years ago, and now it is a movie you can see in a movie theater. Here is a clip from the trailer. Does everybody have a cookie? I loved Edith more than life. Edward, you are my fresh air. I wish I was here to protect her. So what are your friends, carnies? Funny. I was wondering when you get here. I dragged the new kid to have some fun with us. Where are we going? It's an old tradition. Move your arm! Oh! Going somewhere? Oh, I'm sorry, old hag. You are lucky my husband is not here. He would shoot you. Now get out! You may recognize some of those voices such as Lynn Shay from the Insidious Trilogy and Tobin Bell from the Saw series. It's a serious horror movie with horror icons, and I'm excited to share the rest of my conversation with its writer, Patrick Stibbs. When this movie, when it actually started to happen, when there was the momentum, it was really going into production, were you involved in casting the additional people or working with the director in a, in a you know significant way? I was not involved in any of the casting, but I was... I'm also a producer on the project as well. So I was involved with uh, whenever they would cast someone or they were going after someone, you know, they, they'd send out a group email. Timothy would to myself and the other producers and say, hey, here's who I'm going after, you know, blah, blah, blah. And uh, so and then I was also involved, you know, once I sold the script to the studio and Timothy's company, you know, at that point, sometimes the writer is pretty much out of the picture. You know, once you once you sell your script, you really 
a lot of times don't have any input whatsoever. And I was lucky because I was involved in any changes that were made. And, um, and again, I think that helped because a, I think they respected me as the writer, first of all, and B, I was a producer on it. And so I was involved in that, but I wasn't involved in like, Hey, you know, Stibbs, what do you think of this person? Would you, would you pick a B or C? And that was, you know, that wasn't my job. That was Timothy and the casting director. <clears throat> but, um, you know, they would send me auditions of people that were going for roles and to kind of get my input on what I thought. And, uh, and I was just very, very happy with, you know, everybody that was cast. You know, once they cast Lynn Shay, uh, another main character of the, of the movie was her butler. And um, I actually rewrote the, the role of the butler to now be her husband because people thought that would be, let's have more of an emotional connection and let's have this character be your husband instead of her butler. Well, then once we once I rewrote that, then they decided to go after the actor Tobin Bell, who was in the Saw films, which, man, I was excited as heck about that. I mean, they, and they didn't know if they could get him because his, his price tag was kind of up there. And, um, but they were able to work something out. I don't know if the studio coughed up more money for him or if his price came down. I wasn't privy to that, but they got him. And that was a big thing getting Lynn Shay and Tobin Bell, you know, these two horror icons in the same movie because they'd never worked together before. And so the scenes between those two, um, I mean, just watching those two on screen is amazing. And they're not in it very long together because, you know, her character, I'm not giving it any way. She dies early because that's the whole point of the movie. But, um, but just watching those two work together is and, and the scenes they're in together aren't horror scenes. It's, you know, it's a husband and wife that are having problems and issues. So it's a, their scenes are very non-horror. They're more very, they're much more human, you know, and which are great. And that's exactly what Lynn wanted. She wanted her character to be more human. Um, and, you know, when, when, when she first contacted me and we had a four hour phone call one night about her character and, and she goes, I don't want to play the same old character I've ever, I want this character to be human. Yeah, she is the villain of the piece, but you know, I want sympathy for her. I want people to know what she's going through. So she, she knew what she wanted and, and she's a pro. And uh, so that was a cool thing. Yeah. Well, and, uh, both of them have such great screen presence and they just, they feel like real lived in people in all the movies that they're in, it seems like. And Oh Yeah. It's interesting as we talk about this, it, it makes me think, you know, we've talked about several of these uh, actors who have a presence as sort of horror icons, and it seems like we don't have a whole lot of new horror icons, do we? I mean, when you think of people today, are there a lot of people who are associated with the genre the same way, or is that kind of a, a bygone thing? Well, you know, you had a few uh, you had a few scream queens over the years, like Jamie Lee Curtis was, a, was an icon, then Nev Campbell when the scream movies were made. Uh, so you, you did have some of these actors, um, but they were kind of the more femme fatale kind of thing, not the villain, so to speak. You know, I, I guess one of the closest ones would be Robert England, who played Freddy Krueger. Uh, you know, he became another horror icon. Ironically enough, they were actually, if they didn't get Tobin Bell, they were going to go after Robert England to play that role, which I would have been very happy with because I love his work too. But Tobin Bell was the catch so yeah when you when you look at modern day horror films <clears throat> um no you don't really see uh, none come to mind right now i suppose if 
if I thought about it more, but you know, the Lynn Shays and the Tobin Bells and the Robert Englands of the world. Oh, well, I guess, you know, um, Tony Todd, who was the original Candyman, has done a lot of horror. And I think he's even in the remake that Jordan Peele did that's now coming out next year. Um, but they don't have, it's, it's not the same kind of presence um, as like Lynn. I, I guess Lynn and Tobin are kind of like the modern day, you know, Boris Karloff or Bella Lugosi or Elsa Lanchester. You know, uh, there are legends. And uh, man, I hope they keep working for a very long time. It's got to be exciting to have them in your movie, you know, if they, of, of the sort of the last wave of these sort of horror icons and then to be able to have the two of them in your movie. Yeah. And, you know, it was very exciting, too, because I was able to go out. My son and I went out and, and visited the set, one of the sets. Uh, they shot the film in seven different locations around Los Angeles. And one of the main locations was a 17 million dollar Beverly Hills mansion that they rented that the that the production team rented. And so we got to visit the set when they were shooting scenes in the house cuz a lot of the film takes place in this house, Cranston's house. And so you know, it was cool not only being in that atmosphere but then we got to watch some of that filming. So the scenes that my son and I got to watch, a lot of them involved Tobin and uh and Lynn. So you know, we picked the perfect, you know, four days to fly out there out of the, you know, 25-day shoot or whatever it was. So I'm so glad we got to see that um, just to watch these two in action. It is. It kind of gave you – it kind of gives you goosebumps, you know. The weirdest thing really is when you're watching this and you're seeing these characters, so you're watching these characters that you've created, you know, mouthing this dialogue that you've written, and that's a very weird feeling, you know, uh, when I, when I met the actors, it's almost like, my God, you're almost like my children. I created you people, you know, and uh, and they couldn't have been nicer, the, 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 especially the young actors that play the kids. I, well, I shouldn't say kids. They're all in their 20s, but um, they're kids to me. But um, just the nicest group of people, um, you know, we really got lucky. One of our actors, Chester Rushing, was in, is in the show Stranger Things. He was in the first, I think, the first three seasons um aaron andrews the the girl was in um a disney channel show um and now she's all grown up so when uh you know when my son got to meet her he was a fan of her when she was a little kid in the disney channel show and now she's 27 and um beautiful girl and she just nailed her role perfect she was just awesome and um so yeah it was kind of cool to see you know, these up and coming kids too. And they're, and they're all, they're just fantastic in it. They really are. Now, how has COVID impacted the plans for the movie and uh, the release? Well, you know, it's actually been good and bad. Um, first of all, we were very lucky that the film was shot before COVID hit because they finished, they finished the principal photography in late February. And then, you know, COVID hit. I mean, it was, we had heard about it, but it really hit in March. And so we were lucky because nothing got shut down until March. So we were lucky that the film, you know, was completed or at least shot because a lot of productions, if they were still in production when COVID and when there was a shutdown, they just shut down productions. And a lot of those films still haven't been revived yet. So we lucked out there. Um, 
it also changed the release date of the film because initially the studio wanted Timothy Woodward Jr., the director, to deliver the film, I think May 1, for a July release. And um, so because of COVID, the film didn't get, didn't get complete until August, completed until August. With an, and then, then that's when we set the sights for October 2nd for a release date. So that worked out good, too, because I hate I always have hated horror films that came out in the summer. I just I never I don't like that. You know, I, I want horror films to come out in October where they're supposed to be. And um, so COVID helped us there. Now, because of COVID, we were able to get in to a lot of theaters that we probably could not have gotten into. Um, reason being is, for instance, October 2nd, when the call came out, that was also the release date of when Wonder Woman was, was supposed to come out. Well, Wonder Woman, you know, got moved to December and then it, who knows? I think Warner Brothers will probably move it again. But, you know, if Warner Brothers, had, if, if Wonder Woman had opened on October 2nd, I, you know how that goes. You go to the Cineplex and like 10 screens are playing Wonder Woman. So very few screens are left for the smaller films like mine. And so we were lucky because without the big films, you know, with, with the big films being pushed aside, you know, Wonder Woman, the new James Bond, Disney's, you know, um, Milan and then uh, Soul, the Pixar film. So with those movies being shoved aside, that left a lot of screens open. So theaters were like, yeah, we want to book the call. We need product, you know, and so we, that part of it we lucked out in. So we probably played more theaters because of COVID than we would have if we didn't have it. If you're just joining us, I'm talking today with Patrick Stibbs, Omaha screenwriter. His script, The Call, was written 20 years ago and finally has turned into a movie. It's a Hollywood production starring horror legends Tobin Bell and Lynn Shay. It's available now in theaters and soon will be on demand. Here is the rest of my conversation with Patrick Stibbs. Is this one simultaneously going video on demand, or is that going to be later? No, we. Uh, I, I really like this. I, this, it, this was kind of a ballsy move, too, on, on the studio's part and the director's part, because I think everybody wanted it. Most, most of the films that are coming out these last few months are day and date. You know, come, They'll show it in theaters, but you can get it on demand the same day. And they purposely... They purposely didn't do that with the call. They purposely had a 30-day window for theaters. So, you know, October 2nd was the release date. And then sometime uh, in November will be the premium video on demand date. And then um, another 30 days will go by and it'll be the regular video on demand, the cheaper price. And then in December, uh, I believe the DVD and Blu-ray come out. So Cinedyne, the studio, you know, their business model normally does not include a lot of theatrical showings. Their business model is more streaming, POV, um, I mean, I'm sorry, VOD, um, video on demand, so, and, and then Blu-ray and, and DVD. So we were just, I was so fortunate because this movie got a lot of theaters. And uh, that's very rare for a Cinedyne film. Uh, to do that. So uh, I was glad that they did it that way. So, cause I wanted this thing to be shown in theaters initially. I knew it'd be tough because of COVID. I knew some people weren't comfortable going back to theaters. And I, I totally get that, but I will say I'm so excited. I'm happy that the movie theaters 
are taking the precautions they are to protect people. And they're really doing a fantastic job. I mean, I don't know if you've been to any movies, Tom. I mean, I've been to probably 10 movies since COVID hit. And, you know, very cautious. You know, they only sell X amount of seats. I think 30% capacity. Um, so the, the experience is extremely safe. And um, so I'm glad at least they, they, they rolled the dice on the theatrical showings first. Uh, because I, again, I'm a geek. And I always think I, I love it when I can see a movie in a theater rather than at home. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that that was kind of cool. Yeah, I, I find that I miss the uh, the reverence of I'm not going to ha- let anything distract me if I'm in a theater. You know, like I, I I watch a lot of movies at home, but it's much easier to you know check your phone or look out the window exactly. or whatever else. I know. You know, kids, dogs. I mean, everybody's you know bugging you, and you're like, I can't watch this movie. And then I run the risk of falling asleep. So, I mean, uh, at the movie theater, I usually don't do that. But um, they're showing one of those, you know, chairs at the Majestic or whatever. They go all the way back. Um, but I just, I'm just such a, yeah, I, I, I'm such a fan of movie theaters. And I realize it's going to be a very difficult time for theaters coming up here. This is not going to be easy. And, um and so they're just going to have to, you know, peacefully coexist with this, with this virus right now. And, um, and hopefully everything will turn out for the best. You know, some theaters probably won't make it, sadly. And, um, but I don't think the theatrical experience is going to go away. I really don't. I, I'm, I'm going to be a firm believer that it'll, it'll bounce back and uh, hopefully better than ever, you know. Mm-hmm. This this year on the on the flip side though, it seems like it's been a good time for developing new projects and writing. Uh, since a lot of, you know you can't be out shooting something or you can't be as active and doing you know whatever anything else really. So has this been a good time for you and sort of figuring out what's next? You know, yeah, it really is. And I will tell you what, uh, it's actually a good time to be a writer, and and not only necessarily because of COVID, but you know with with Netflix and Hulu and Amazon and and CNN films and ESPN films. I mean, you've got so many streaming services looking for product now, you know, and then when Disney launched Disney plus and they lost, you know, every other streaming service lost that Disney product. So Netflix alone is committing to, what did I hear? Like $500 billion in new material, you know? So as a writer in the old days, you know, you write a script and hope that a studio would make it and put it in theaters you don't need the theaters right now. You know, Netflix is looking for original content, movies. Uh, another script I have is a kid's film, a kid's horror film. And, um, you know, I've come to find out that a lot of these Netflix and, and Hulu, you know, they, they have kids divisions where they're looking for product for kids. And cause again, they, everything they were shown is on the Disney is on Disney plus now. So they need family content. So I'm hoping that this will be good timing for getting my next project off the ground here, which is called Ghost in the Graveyard. So, you know, I think as a writer, if if you're thinking of, of writing and you want to give it a shot, I really think this is a great time to do it. I mean, granted, there's still a ton of competition out there. But, you know, I tell you what really um, helped me early on, because, you know, studios will get, you know, tens of thousands of scripts a year right and only so many get made which is kind of why they say it's like hitting the lottery um but i remember a producer telling me one time uh he said 
Yeah, the bad news is, as for a writer, is there's just, you know, 100,000 scripts a year being flooded into Hollywood. I go, wow, is there any good news? He says, yeah. The good news is 95% of them suck. So he goes, try to be one of those 5% that has a good script and you got to, you know. So I remember him saying that, and that made me feel a little bit better about my odds of, you know, because I was also living in Nebraska, and a lot of people said that couldn't happen either. Oh, you can't live in Nebraska and sell a movie. You got to live out there. And so I guess I was bound and determined to prove him wrong. I, I think probably because my idol is Walt Disney and everybody always told Walt he couldn't do anything. You know, you, you can't make a full length animated film. You can't get adults to come to a full length animated film. You know, bam, Snow White comes huge movie. Right? You, you can't get families to go to a theme park together. There's no way. Bam, he builds Disneyland. So it's like everybody that told him no, he basically said, go screw yourself, I'm going to do it anyway. And I kind of admired that, you know, that he, that he, and, and there was a quote years ago that he said, uh, uh, all, of, all of our dreams can come true if we have the courage to pursue them. And I, and I love that quote because, you know, all of us have a dream of something. You know, whether it's to write or act or do whatever, own a restaurant, whatever your dream is. And so many times people, for various reasons, don't follow that dream. And I guess and of course, my dream was to sell a screenplay and or, or several, hopefully, knock on wood. But um, and it would have been really easy to give up after like the 100th rejection. <laughs> but I just kept thinking of that quote that Walt Disney said, you know. And it's like, if you don't pursue it, you ain't, you ain't going to get it, you know, and, it, and nobody ever said it was going to be handed to you. So I kept thinking of that all the time when, when, you know, it'd get me down a little bit. And, and um, so I, I think that's the moral of the story is just, if you've got a dream man, just, just don't give up. I think that's a good note for us to wrap up on. So before I let you go though, where should people go to find the call to see it, uh, this will go up in November. So, what's the easiest place to find it or to follow whatever future projects you're working on? Uh, okay, well, if you go to thecallmovie.com, um, we have a website up that talks about the film. The trailer's on there. It's got some. Uh, it has some cities that it's playing in uh, around the country. Um, in Omaha, is this podcast basically going? In the Omaha area? Or? Yeah, it'll, it'll be on KIOS in Omaha, and then uh, it'll be available. Yeah, I mean, most, most of the audience is Nebraska-based. Okay, perfect. So I just want to let people know that the film is going to be held over into November. It was booked just for the month of October, but it literally is the number one film at the theater, the Westwood Cinema. So they're going to hold it over through November. So the film will still be playing at the Westwood Cinema, which is 125th and Center. And a lot of people are saying, now, why? how come it's not showing like at AMC or Marcus in Omaha? Well, it all gets back to those big, huge chains wanted certain terms, and they weren't willing to play ball with our distributor. And so the distributor said, well, you know, we're not going to change what we're doing. We're already offering a great deal. So we didn't book AMC in Omaha. We didn't book Marcus in Omaha. We didn't book Regal in Omaha, which is on Sorensen Parkway. So those are basically the three chains in Omaha and the Westwood cinema agreed to our terms. And so even though this film is playing in first run theaters and drive-ins all over the country or in some parts of the country, I shouldn't say all over in Omaha, it's at the Westwood. So the good news is 
you can see a first run film that normally would cost you 10 or 11 bucks. You can see it for three seventy five at the Westwood. So it's a hell of a deal. <laughs> so yeah, you can go catch it at the Westwood cinema. Um, it'll be playing all the way. It should be playing through the month of November there. And probably at least until Thanksgiving, I would imagine. And who knows if it keeps doing business, maybe they'll keep it through Christmas. I don't know. <laughs> well, I wish you the best of luck with it. And uh, thank you very much for talking to me today. Well, Tom, thank you very much. I I really appreciate you having me on, man. Thank you very much. Patrick Stibbs is the screenwriter of The Call. It's his first screenplay that was written 20 years ago and now exists as a movie that you can see in theaters and soon on demand. Riverside Chats is produced in conjunction with KIOS and Exarban Creative. Our original music is written and performed by The Real Zebos. Our artwork is done by Ben Matukowicz. We also have a backlog of episodes, which maybe you've noticed. We've been on the air for a while now, and if you want to listen to any of the previous conversations that I've had on this show, and it's gotten to be quite a lot of them, you can find those wherever you get podcasts. Go to Apple Podcasts, go to Spotify, go to Google Play, wherever you get yours. If it's a major podcast app, I assure you, we are on there. While you're there, please go ahead and leave us a review. I talk all the time on this show. You might get tired of it sometimes. I get tired of hearing my voice all the time. Sometimes it'd be very nice to be able to do a show where I just hear somebody else and I don't even have to be the one asking the questions. I can just learn and listen, right? So help me listen to you. What do you think? You listen to this show, right? Even if this is your first time listening, if you've got ideas for future episodes, things you want to hear about, people you want to hear from, send us an email at podcast.exarbancreative.com. If you're somebody who's doing something interesting and you'd like to be on the show, go ahead and reach out. I'd love to hear from you. It's always fun to hear from anybody, whatever you think about the show, whether it's good, bad, middling. If you can tell me I did something wrong, I, I am open to that because it happens uh, all the time, constantly. So please, please reach out. We'd love to hear from you. Follow us on social media. Uh, help, me, help me understand who you are, the people who listen to this show, all right? So reach out. Do whatever you need to do. There's a lot of options for you, but at the very least, I'd love it if you'd subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts political season is over so we've got some upcoming conversations with astronaut clayton anderson with author ted wheeler and some other exciting things that i'm not quite ready to spoil yet because i i have to make sure that they happen first but you can find a preview of our upcoming episodes on all of our social media pages there's a lot more variety coming up because we're not in the middle of an election month although we do have some municipal elections coming up in the spring so lots of variety lots of guests lots of culture to explore right here on the show we'll be back next week thank you as always for listening this has been riverside chats and i am tom no block <laughs>